0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Panic Mode, the podcast for gamers and game designers with your hosts who are playing their very own rogue life. Aiden and Shelby. Jesus Christ, you spent all
1: afternoon thinking about that? I did.
0: Do you get it?
1: It's just like this whole day, you were just like, I got this joke. I got this joke. Do you even get the joke, Aiden? It's going to be killer. Why don't you
0: explain the joke to me? Okay,
1: well, I think it's because we're talking about rogue (laughs) likes today. Uh And apparently, and the sense of humor that we're accepting on this show now is just purely phonetic coincidence. So sorry, everyone, that we've fallen this low.
0: Aiden, you didn't get my joke. The joke is rogue in... In rogues, typically a popular uh, similarity between them all is permadeath. And in life, rogue life, all we have is permadeath. Get Are you it? Sure? We're basically. Have you ever died before? Ro- well, no. So how do you know? I don't know. <laughs> I guess it's just an assumption. Maybe
1: I'm I'd on think. New Game Plus and I didn't oh tell Oh my anyone. God. All
0: right, Andy. We're, we're, playing, uh, we're playing, we're talking about, we're thinking about roguelikes today. Very exciting. The genre itself, how it started, where it's going, and some similarities and differences between a lot of the different kind of roguelike games, roguelite games that we're seeing these days, because there's a lot of variety and a lot of debate about what could be considered a rogue game versus what is not. Uh, So we're going to get into that. I'm pretty excited.
1: All right. Explain this to me like I'm five. What is a (laughs) roguelike?
0: So a roguelike came about after the game Rogue. (laughs) as you may imagine. You know,
1: game designers just exceedingly creative with their vernacular at times.
0: So this is very much like Dark Souls. We're seeing a lot of games come out that refer to themselves as Souls-like games because they're inspired by the original Dark Souls mechanics and they have some similarities going on. So roguelikes are basically the same story, but it just happened a lot earlier. In 1980, the game Rogue was released and it was basically uh, a game Done in ASCII art, so you don't actually see any characters or really anything on the screen other than uh, letter characters themselves, so like backslashes, an at sign, perhaps, an and sign, right? Uh, What is it? Octothorpe? Octothorpe,
1: aka the hashtag. Who knows?
0: (laughs) Uh, But basically, you control this little character, this little uh, letter or number, um, as you explore different levels of a dungeon. And it's going to be totally randomly generated or procedurally generated, sorry, (laughs) on each playthrough. So you're going to get a different dungeon every single time. And the reason you're going to be getting a different dungeon is because when you die, you die in real life. No, you die permanently. It's permadeath. They would implement permadeath. So every run is a different run. You'll probably hear that a lot. Uh, these, these different stages of playing through a game being referred to as a run, Um, so that's just one playthrough before you die and then have to restart. Rogue was also turn-based. It took place on a square grid, which is heavily influenced by that ASCII art that they were using and it allowed players to have time to determine their best move to survive. So the, uh, the player would move and then they could think about what their next move would be. Um, there wouldn't have like enemies attacking them in real time or anything like that. So that was what Rogue was. So these elements have been heavily adapted and copied uh, in in some different ways throughout the years to create the genre roguelike. And this is what we're gonna be talking about today. How these games have evolved, how they've used these previous mechanics that Rogue once implemented that became very, very popular and fun. Yeah, I was which about to say, uh, it's led like, people to wanna look up, oh, what, what games are like Rogue that I can play, right?
1: It's true, but I'm, you're saying like all these games that are likes are the game, are like the game Rogue. And I'm like, I feel like I haven't seen that many ASCII games in the past couple <laughs> of years. So well, I'm not sure how up to date this definition is. That's
0: a great point, Aiden. So we're gonna be talking about the definition. Um, but the first thing that we're going to need to remember for this is that really a roguelike is any game that has randomly generated levels and has permadeath. Those are the two main kind of keys that we're going to be following throughout this episode. So, so keep those in mind.
1: Every level is different, never been seen before, and you only get one shot at it.
0: Yeah, until okay. you restart, obviously. The game isn't like, ha ha, one shot go away you get to try again you just you yeah, just restart
1: just, you you pay for the game on steam every time every it's just, it just uninstalls yeah, no wonder after so you lose. <laughs> only for the rich people
0: all right so let's talk about the berlin interpretation of what roguelike is where what would happen in berlin when was this why
1: this was this was 2008 about at, at a roguelike conference for game designers cool. so very esoteric <laughs> and this is essentially decided you know what we all like roguelikes. We're all game designers. We're going to come up with the 14 most important factors Fourteen! that constitute any given roguelike, <laughs> to which everyone else in the room rolled their eyes and said, this is going to be the most academic list of factors that ever academiced.
0: Good times. Okay, so this was in 2008, so obviously this is a little uh, a little dated, especially with the evolving rate of video games and how yeah. quickly they changed. This is
1: not going to be on the quiz later, but it is <laughs> worth talking about just so you know it's there. Because it's like a very famous way to evaluate roguelikes.
0: Yeah, so these 14 factors, they split up into high and low value. I'm guessing high value is what they placed more emphasis on, and low value was like... You, I guess you can have it or not. What what was the difference well, given there? That, Why uh, did they split them up?
1: Because they definitely had to put ASCII in low value. That's my only understanding of this division <laughs> because there's no way ASCII is being a big part of it. Anyway, let's get into the, the, the eight first, the eight high value factors first. All right.
0: So these are important or so we think. So first of all, this is actually what we've already said, random dungeon generation. So I think the word dungeon in there is going to get a little dated. Uh, It's not always a dungeon. I guess a dungeon is just a... I
1: think it just become shorthands for level.
0: Yeah, it's not so much the aesthetic of you're in a literal dungeon, (laughs) but you're in a dungeon setting where you're uh, probably stuck with some monsters and you got to run around and survive that kind of idea. So random generation, number one.
1: And I think this dungeon has all just come to mean in any video game, uh, a contained area with enemies, Yeah, that it's not a happy town area, this is a bad (laughs) area.
0: I guess that's true. I guess that's true. All
1: right. All right. Number number two, two, permadeath. Jinx. Yeah. So this is exactly what it sounds like when he talks about this. Every death resets the run. The next one is number three, turn-based gameplay where the world only takes an action after you do.
0: Right. So that gives you time to think. The player can sit there and be like, what am I going to do? And when you decide, that's when the game will act in turn, basically after you do.
1: Uh, there is non-modal gameplay, which is which is shorthand, it's kind of a weird one, but it basically means every action available to the player is available from the start. So it's not like after a thousand runs, I have any different actions available to me when I start my thousandth and first run.
0: Yeah, so this is in contrast to Metroidvanias, which often give you upgrades in order to traverse different parts of the levels. In roguelikes, you should be able to traverse any part of the level at any time. You shouldn't need any upgrades um, to be able to beat the game, for example. Uh, it's really more about um, using the skills that you have. And I think, you know, you could get upgrades in different ways. And this is something we'll talk about later, how this has changed. But usually that doesn't alter the gameplay itself. It might just make it a little bit easier, not necessarily uh, a necessity in order to complete a level. So yeah, that's non modal. All the actions are available to you from the start. Number five
1: Emerging gameplay, it's back. Well, actually not in the same definition as it was before in the progressive versus emergent oh, gameplay no. <laughs> episode. It just means that the world has rules that the enemies and players abide by the same. Where if you light someone on fire, they both take damage. It's not like like you, you as the player would take damage if it happened to you, but so would the hell demons. Like There are rules that apply to everyone. Like I think a common way this is manifested is... In games like Dark Souls, which is not strictly speaking a roguelike, you have stamina, but so do the enemies. That Mm. they are constrained by the same rules that you have. Cool. All right. Next up, limited resources.
0: Yeah, this is number six. So... The resources are exactly what it sounds like. (laughs) They are limited, you have limited resources. We'll see this later in some examples. Uh, This often takes place in terms of gathering money, for example. So any form of currency is obviously very limited because if you die, you lose all of it. So immediately your currency is gonna be limited. There's also some cheeky things designers have done in a number of games where they force you to spend your money so you can't hoard it (laughs) until the very end, which is really more of a skill tax. which is really more of a skill check because rather than, you know, dying over and over, but still being able to save that money, you just save little pieces here and there in order to get a big sum, you need to not die and build up that big sum uh, to really kind of prove your skill and be able to get that maybe more expensive upgrade that you want. But that's something we'll talk about later, uh, but that, that's, uh, yeah, limited resources.
1: All right, number seven is hack and slash gameplay, which is where you start to see though, the definition of this, this interpretation of roguelike fall apart a bit because obviously like most roguelikes are not strictly speaking hack and slash games. But I can see where they were coming from with this definition, is that up until the original roguelike games did tend to be very hack and slash oriented.
0: Yeah. What is hack and slash,
1: Uh, It's when you hack and slash your opponents to death.
0: (laughs) No, seriously. What is is the definition?
1: Essentially, the combat is based on melee gameplay, typically with a sword.
0: Oh, I see. So... A game like Enter the Gungeon would not be hack and slash. Because you're using Even though
1: that is widely considered to be one of the seminal (laughs) roguelikes.
0: Fun. Fun times. All right. Number eight. Mystery items. This is one that we'll also see in some examples later. Uh, Binding of Isaac is a very popular example for mystery items. You can walk up to something open it and it'll be a different item every time. And this also goes hand in hand with that idea of random generation of levels. Um, If there are items in there, of course, they're going to be randomly generated too. So there's going to be, there's going to be some mystery items.
1: (laughs) Yeah. While I was doing research for this episode, I came across this article on Gamasutra by a designer called John Harris who was kind of submitting his own set of factors that go oh, into great. rogue like
0: <laughs> 20 and factors that make a rogue <laughs> I
1: decided not to include it because it just seems kind of redundant since we were already kind of presenting the Berlin one as one that should not be abided by mm. but he he talked about a factor that any mystery items should not instantly kill the player it was like the cyanide <laughs> principle and I'm like you know what that is a good principle of game design mr Harris well done <laughs> I like it. I thought that was funny.
0: So those were the eight high value factors. Let's go into the final six low value factors. So with the assumption that these are perhaps less important, but still present.
1: Yeah. So number one is it is a single player experience, not in the sense that you play it by yourself, although probably in that sense, too, as far as they were thinking, but that you only control one avatar and you view the world from the perspective of that avatar.
0: Cool. Number two, monsters are similar to players. The same rules apply to them. This actually sounds exactly like the one above. The
1: emergent gameplay one. So again, it gets tricky, but it's essentially just saying the world is consistent, the monsters are consistent.
0: Cool. Number three, tactical challenge. You have to improve your tactical understanding to progress the game.
1: So we'll get more into this later, but essentially what it's talking about is since it's a non-modal gameplay, you cannot upgrade your character, you must upgrade your skills.
0: Number four, ASCII graphics. So this is text generated, like what we were talking about with the original rogue and it's top down. So you'll see a lot of familiar characters, not like literal little people characters, but characters that you would see on a keyboard, like backslashes, forward slashes, octothorps. I'm going to keep saying that, (laughs) yeah.
1: Ampersands, even.
0: Ampersands, ah, oh, the whole, the whole shebang.
1: Yeah, so if there was any doubt that this was kind of a questionable interpretation of rogues, I think ASCII graphics may be the most uh, problematic <laughs> factor here.
0: All right, number five, dungeons. Wow, you're in a dungeon. You know,
1: I would have thought that has, that if your first factor was random dungeon generation, that would imply the existence of dungeons. But let's go with it.
0: <laughs> and number six, numbers.
1: So this is just the way to quantify character HP, etc., which basically exists in every video game ever, it's just not always expressed that way to the player. Where instead of having 10 health, it just shows you a red health bar that is x pixels long that goes down x pixels upon each hit.
0: Yeah, so I guess, really, it's more the existence of, like, health or... Yeah, something like that. But I guess numbers can also refer to how much damage you do as a character, how much damage a weapon can do. How much damage um, the
1: cyanide does to you when you <laughs> pop it out of a random chest. That's true. Boot chip, boot chip. <laughs>
0: Basically, there's, a, there's some numbers that are happening. And as we know now, those numbers can be communicated in many different ways, like you were saying, with health bars, with hearts, yeah. um, whatever you want, really. So, uh, so that's interesting. That's an interesting set of 14 things um, that seem to have been just kind of thrown together. Well, I guess, you know, you got to cut them some slack, right? This was in 2008 that they came up with this stuff. Video games looked very different in 2008 than they do now, especially with the indie scene. I think there's a lot more accessibility in order for indie studios I, to start. I will start cut up and them
1: no slack things. here. They put ASCII on the list.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. You're right. ASCII somehow still made it. Uh, but but we can look at this list and we can sort of see what has been retained and what has changed, and I think that's really interesting too. Okay. Um, so, so saying that, let's talk about two video essays that we really liked that we're going to use as jumping off points to, to talk about the the different ways that these fourteen principles have changed and stayed the same over the years. So, the first one is Design Doc, the channel Design Doc, very awesome. Um, it goes into a lot of detail about what sort of games you get as you change these Berlin interpretation factors, which I thought was really interesting.
1: For instance, this is a real example from the video. If you take out the turn-based gameplay and insert music-based gameplay, you get Crypt of the Necrodancer, and I'm like, wow, I would I would have never thought to replace turn-based with music, but man, yeah. now I know. Yeah, it's
0: kind of cool. Hey, it's a—I uh, I thought it was a really interesting way of slotting in different things to not only break the Berlin interpretation, but also show that it's still a roguelike, even if you remove and change some of these factors yeah. around. Um, So that video is, of course, going to be linked in the show notes for anybody interested. The second video we'll be referencing is by Mark Brown, one of our favorite video essayists. um, And he's talking about uh, more roguelike versus roguelite, which we'll also be getting into later. So both kind of come at it from a similar but different perspective. But what both of these channels agree on is that randomly generated dungeons and permadeath are really the defining features of roguelikes and that's because they allow for these far from uh, familiar elements and new gameplay emerges because of this right so this idea of random generation is going to create this this sense of unfamiliarity um and it really pushes you as the player to become skilled in a number of different things rather than just memorizing um, you can really learn how different enemies work in different environments and prepare for it that way. And that makes for new gameplay as well, right? Cause you never really know what's coming. You never know what the lay of the land is going to look like. So you're going to be doing different things each time. It might be a similar mechanic of swinging your sword, for example, but it's going to be in different ways in different situations. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be interesting. And then the second thing that this kind of permadeath plus random generation allows for is what I just talked about. That's valuing comprehension over memorization.
1: That, like, imagine a a roguelike game that was based around guns, and you had an enemy with a sniper rifle. Mm -hmm. That if if this enemy, the level, decided to spawn in a a small room, it wouldn't be much of an issue. You'd be right up close to it. The sniper rifle wouldn't do much good. Checkmate. But what if he spawned really far away across a field where he had perfect vision? Or she, I guess I should stop using the male pronoun, was down (laughs) a narrow hallway, and she had a perfect line of sight, and there was no way ostensibly around. That... You can't approach all these situations the same way through memorization. You have to understand the system the game is offering to you. Maybe you have some kind of right shield or dash yeah. ability or your own sniper rifle. You have to figure out how to counter <laughs> a variety of situations because you never know what you're gonna encounter, but which makes it super rewarding when you can deal with anything.
0: That's true, yeah. You feel like kind of a badass when you uh, when you figure out those systems to the point where you can just go through and just you know lay waste to the land <laughs> that's brand new, you've never seen before. You feel kind of good about yourself. I don't know, it's a good. It's good time. <laughs>
1: All right. So in the Mark Brown video, he also goes into the, again, really, really academic, pedantic debate between rogue likes versus rogue lights. So, Shelby, what is a rogue light?
0: Okay. So a rogue light is very interesting. It was created because people were getting upset that <laughs> rogue likes were taking on too much. Uh, was too the vernacular
1: just too simple? It was too simple.
0: Um, it's, it's evolved a lot. Right. And so with that evolving, new ideas are evolving. We stray further from rogue every day. Right. Um, so basically a rogue light allows for some progression between runs. So this is something that rogue likes, uh, don't really do at all because they are rogue likes, (laughs) but a rogue light as an example, Um, between runs, let's say you're collecting a certain type of currency. So this actually happens in enter the gungeon. You can pick up, I think it's after you beat a boss, you actually get a special type of money that you do not lose if you die. And so you can actually, the point is to build up this money and you're able to unlock new guns basically that you could find randomly. It's still mystery boxes, which is kind of cute. Um, but you can purchase uh, a bigger variety of guns on top of the massive variety that the, <laughs> that the game already offers you. Um, and you can have a better chance of rolling, you know, different types of weapons. So that's this idea of it allows for some progression, right? You can uh, do things outside of you dying. This is even in a hub world. So I think it's the game called Hades In the game called Hades, they use story progression. Um, and this is something that happens outside of of runs happening. So let's say you die that actually gives you an opportunity to go back to the home world and maybe you found some type of item or something that a character was looking for. You can give it to them. You can talk to them in between these deaths and it'll actually advance the story in really interesting ways. So there are things, uh, that can happen, you know, outside of death, um, progression in story, in, uh, the number of weapons that you can have, even in some skills. Um, and this can help to make the game easier for you. And a lot of the time, that's why it's considered a rogue light because a roguelike with a K, (laughs) the difficulty spike, you, it starts, uh, fairly, I guess, a little. Well, the difficulty
1: is always the same. It never spikes.
0: Well, yeah, but it gets... It's not that it gets easier. Like it never gets easier, basically. It might get harder <laughs> depending on where you are, but it's not really going to yeah. have a have that equal kind of graph where the bar just goes up the entire time, right? That's a that's a roguelike. But a roguelite, because progression can happen between runs, the difficulty actually does change quite a bit. Rather than it being entirely difficult or easy the whole time, you actually see that the game does get easier over time. It might not always, you know, you're going to run into challenges, but overall you're going to feel like you're getting better at the game. And it's unclear whether it's because you are getting these, you know, progression bonuses and leveling up or because you've actually mastered the skill of the game. Um, so that's actually a common criticism of a roguelite
1: so i know we're describing a lot of difficulty curves which may not be the best way to communicate these ideas in a non-visual medium so if you have the time i suggest you go watch the mark brown video essay to see what exactly he's describing it'll also be linked in the show notes but what we can talk about is the pros and cons of both the rogue like and the rogue lite so rogue likes without the without being able to progress between runs in any meaningful way the game is all about skill it is all about how good you are at the game because If I sit down and play your game and you've never played it before, it'll be the same experience as if I had played my game for a thousand hours. There are no barriers to victory. It is just you against the machine.
0: (laughs) I love it. So the cons of roguelike, rogue K, if you will... (laughs)
1: I would prefer that. That would make it much easier to remember.
0: So the cons here are is that the difficulty is unchanging. It's like you said, it's just you versus the machine. And if you're not very good at the game, that can be extremely frustrating. And you'll just have some players that can never meet that threshold in order to progress, right? And speaking of progression, there is no progression. Not really in terms of uh, you feeling like you've accomplished something, especially if you just die at the end of one run. There's really nothing to show for it. Um, so the, the progression can be frustrating and the, especially if the the difficulty is too hard for you in the beginning, um, and it's taking too much time for you to push through that, that can be frustrating as well.
1: Like, I think it'll leave a bad taste in literally anyone's mouth in any type of game if you sit down and play for an hour or two hours and for whatever reason you're going to show for it. Yeah. That you always kind of want to be like, okay, something has changed. I have improved. I have acquired more currency. I have advanced the story. Something is different. Mm-hmm. I have done something with my time. But if you're just like, well, I guess I'm back at the start screen, right where I began. <laughs> and I, I didn't really learn anything. You're just like, okay, well... My mouth tastes like <laughs> dust right now. I don't know why. It
0: can be weird. Yeah. Especially if you're playing a roguelike for the first time, right? Different players are going to react to things in different ways. So it's just something to keep in mind and remember as you're designing and even as a player too. Um, you know, roguelikes aren't for everybody. Some are. Depends on the game. There are so many different kinds of roguelikes. That's
1: true.
0: <laughs> Which is kind of funny to say. But yeah, sometimes it's just about experimenting. So let's move on to roguelites. Rogue tea.
1: <laughs> rogue tea. Okay. I think I saw that Star Wars movie. Oh, there you go. All right. <laughs> Uh, so the best the best part about it is obviously it gets around this no progression issue because every run has meaning and that with enough time beating your head against wall, upgrading your characters, literally anyone can beat the beat the game. Because they will can eventually just over-level their character where the system can't really take them anymore just by sheer force of will and grinding.
0: Yeah. The cons to roguelites are that this can often be an artificial barrier to victory, so it's not that It's like you said, like, it's just a matter of time, basically, before you're able to upgrade enough.
1: If I lose, I'm just like, oh, well, maybe I just haven't gotten enough upgrades the designers wanted me to have. And there's just this barrier between me and advancing the game that just exists there artificially.
0: There's also what I was talking about earlier with that idea of ambiguity over player skill. So it's when you beat the game and you feel good about yourself, it's kind of a question of, okay, Was it because I got really good at the game and I was learning the mechanics and the comprehension needed in order to beat it? Or was it because I just progressed enough and overleveled my character? And the one caveat I will add to that is does it matter? (laughs) I think it's the type of player that you are and it's whether or not you care if there are semantic issues with when you say you beat a game. If you beat Dark Souls 2, but you only used arrows, did you really beat it? I mean, that's only for you to decide. I don't think anybody else has any business telling anybody how they should be playing a game. Yeah,
1: like, I mean, when I beat the Elite Four with my level 75 Blastoise, I didn't care that I (laughs) overleveled it. I was just happy to beat them.
0: (laughs) Exactly, there you go, right? So I think that ambiguity over player skill is really a personal thing that everybody's gonna have a different opinion on, and that's okay. It's just about knowing how you feel and what you look for in order to obtain joy when playing something. And keep that in mind when you're you're looking mechanics and maybe fi- trying to find a roguelike or ro- roguelite that would match you. <laughs>
1: Whoever picked, picked those terms yeah, please needs, needs to be expelled <laughs> from gaming academia. So Mark Brown in his video offered two ways around some of these cons, where to get around the no progression issue in roguelikes, the, you do things to advance the game that don't affect the gameplay. So the no progression gameplay is intact, but you still have something to show for each play session, which mm-hmm. is what you were talking about with games like Hades and Enter the Gungeon, where yeah. you were getting bits of story or little new bits of variety to add to each run, that the game doesn't get easier, but it does either get different or the story gets different. Stuff like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: exactly. Right. And I think, too, cosmetics are such a big thing that I think we can all appreciate. So even giving your character like a new little outfit or something like that could go a long way to show that you're making oh, I progress. love having my
1: character look cool. Like-
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: All right. And then a way to get around this issue about ambiguity over player skill, which was the problem we had with roguelites, is that you still have to have the game be hard just to get the upgrades. Mm-hmm. Where like an example I was thinking of was in Dark Souls that like if I want to level up in meaningful ways, eventually it becomes way too tedious to do it just against lower level enemies that I have to go beat hard enemies or if I want to farm good materials I have to be defeating harder enemies. Or games like Rogue Legacy, I think is what it's called, where you only get the money, you only get to keep the money you get from each individual run. You can't stockpile money over multiple yeah, runs. Yeah. So stuff like that, which still facilitates amount of progression, but still requires more and more player skill.
0: Yeah. So it's still it's still testing you. Um, you're still progressing. You're getting those upgrades, but you need to prove that you can get them first. So there's like, it's almost like milestones, right? Yeah. You're They're seeing if you can meet these milestones. And I noticed that you bring up Dark Souls a lot for roguelike examples. Is Dark Souls a roguelike?
1: Yes and no, because I think that in some senses, like, your first pass through an area kind of can feel roguelike, because you have never seen that area before unless you've watched a playthrough or something. So on your initial run, it's kind of like a roguelike, and you have permadeath, but... Obviously the levels don't change unless you're doing a chalice dungeon in right. Bloodborne. And I think if you went through and looked at the Berlin interpretation of roguelikes, you'd realize Dark Souls had a lot of elements like that, which is why it keeps coming up with me, coming up for me.
0: I think it's probably closer to a roguelite than a roguelike because you can the, yes. just the character progression
1: Yeah, Um, where Dark Souls has its own answer to the whole player skill ambiguity thing, (laughs) where it's just like the game is so ridiculously hard that it doesn't matter how much you pump your character up, you're happy just to win no matter what it looks like.
0: That's true. That's very true. So yeah, I think Rogue Light Dark Souls um, kind of inspires a lot of those elements. Um, And that's kind of interesting too, because Dark Souls spawned, of course, its own genre, which is also very interesting.
1: Um, When when, when are are we going to get souls light?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, man. So oh here we go. (laughs) I don't know. That would be kind of wild. So now that we've kind of gone over what all of these things are, what all these elements are, um, let's talk about why roguelikes, roguelites, whichever you prefer, what makes them so compelling? There's so many of them these days. So many people are looking to play them.
1: I think it's first and foremost the emphasis they place on skill. But that is something common to both of them and not a lot of games do that. Where there's a lot of games that are very easy and you can pretty much anyone can beat the experience with a little bit of practice, but roguelikes and roguelites don't offer that to you. That if you want to get deep into the game you have to be good and it will make you feel like you are skilled. And I think that's the main appeal.
0: Hmm. I think it's compelling to sit down and you'd like have a goal of wanting to reach a certain point and then being able to play it over and over again until you get to that point. I think that's very compelling because it's the, it's the idea of one more time, right? One more run. And I think that in itself is a very compelling idea, whether you're, whether it's, you know, runs or like a level in candy crush or, uh, an episode on Netflix, right? There's this mentality of, okay, one more blank, one more thing. And I think roguelikes tap into that really well. Just that, almost human nature of like wanting to just, oh, what's the, what's the next thing on the horizon, right? What if this is the run where I get further than I ever have, especially if it's like a light, like a rogue light, right? And you're, you're aiming to get a certain upgrade or something like that. Um, I think it can be really easy to just sit down and get lost in these types of games, which is really cool and and very compelling.
1: And I think it also has the built-in variety, that you never know what you're going to get in each gameplay, where a lot of games will get stale over time because you memorize the levels, memorize the enemy behaviors and locations, and that's just something roguelikes and roguelites will never have.
0: Yeah, it's true. Okay, another question I thought was super interesting is, are multiplayer games roguelikes?
1: So this one, like, I was doing the research and this question kept popping into my mind and it hurt my brain every time. (laughs) Smell toast from a mile away. But... Because they they do share a lot of elements where if you consider each match of a multiplayer game, whatever form it takes to be a session, and then win or lose is like the you, you are reset back to the start no matter the way, just like a roguelike. And the enemies, which since they're played by player characters, are also always different. Like the mm-hmm. maps may stay the same, but the enemies will always be behaving in different and intricate ways. Like I think there is a lot in common with the roguelike genre that you see in pretty much any multiplayer experience.
0: I guess. I don't know. I I struggle to jump on your logic. I mean, do I think that the commonality of like, oh, enemies doing different things is common between them? Yeah, totally. But is that taken from rogue game like roguelike games? specifically and I don't know I would disagree with that I don't think it is I think you could look at a number of genres and be like yeah these are commonalities between them but does that make it you know exactly borrowed from that genre and I don't I don't know if that's true or not I struggle to I don't know I struggle to agree I guess
1: (laughs) I think the answer to this question is no multiplayer games typically aren't roguelikes but a lot of them do have a lot of roguelike elements Mm -hmm. to them and I guess but are
0: those roguelike elements that they have
1: See, now we're getting deep into the pedantic right? side of it's like, okay, game academia. It's
0: enemies doing different things. And it's like, well, is that but not like, multiplayer? Can, can
1: consider this where you were talking about our desire to see what's just over the horizon, what's yeah. going to be in the next playthrough. Yeah. I think that's a big driving part of games like uh, Apex and Fortnite and the Battle Royale genre where yeah. there is like a very big goal that's very hard to reach. But each attempt is very fast and very quick and every game you're like maybe this will be the one I just go the whole way and win and it's it's very exciting every time and that is something that is very common to roguelikes but it varies from game to game and I just thought it was an interesting question to throw your way no
0: I agree I think it's wild I think it's a wild question I think it's cool though because it's the it's also the idea of like okay those 14 definitions you know quotation marks
1: (laughs) gotta get that ASCII in there ASCII
0: in there uh these definitions that maintain a roguelike and we kind of came to the conclusion that these probably aren't the best definitions anymore because of you know how much has changed but also how limiting that is if every game follows those exact protocols you're going to get a lot of games that are that are similar and it's because these games like binding of isaac enter the gungeon you know hades all of these these different dark souls you know they they looked at that formula and they made anywhere from an enormous number of changes to just one or two, right? And and those made all the difference to still keep it in that idea of what a rogue like could be but progress the genre to something we maybe haven't seen before and to keep it fresh and new and interesting and, and to keep innovating, right? So I think it would be, it would be interesting today if we tried to do 14 new definitions and one does that even make sense to do because we know that definitions are dumb and they only constrict us Um but still I would I guess even to just take stock of all the different games yeah. that are considered it's roguelikes like, and list their commonalities and just see like okay where are we today versus where were we then
1: like if we're looking at the Berlin interpretation as just like a set of parameters to describe a genre well p- parameters much like stats they're all made up, <laughs> but, but some of them are useful. Yeah, and that's really the most we can ever ask for them.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's cool. I like it. All right. So, mm-hmm. last
1: question for you: What is the future of roguelikes?
0: Oh man. Well, I don't. Much like 2008, they had they had no idea, and I don't think <laughs> I don't think we have any idea either. I think I think all I know is that they're probably going to change a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think we're going to see more and more genre blending between yeah, roguelikes yeah. and other things like a. I look forward to see how roguelikes get implemented with the guitar hero genre or something and I'm not talking about Crypt of the NecroDancer it's not just music I was just <laughs> trying to be ridiculous <laughs> Okay <laughs> But yeah I think it could go in any given direction and at some point people are going to draw the line and say this is no longer a ro- rogue like this is a souls like which like we had in mm, 2011 with yep. Dark Souls and Where the genres start and end is ultimately very arbitrary, but I think roguelike is a very big one and I think it covers a lot more things than what was set out in the Berlin interpretation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm I'm excited, I'm interested. I know there's so many brilliant, wonderful people who are getting creative with many different genres. So yeah, I think that genre blending thing is going to really be key. Um, and that's going to be really exciting because who doesn't love, you know, messing with the rules. (laughs) I look forward to it.
1: Awesome. On that note, I think we'll end the episode there.
0: Yeah. Thank you everybody for tuning in.
1: Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Panic Mode. You can reach us on social media at panicmode.net, all spelled out, or on our website, panicmode.net. We would love to hear any comments, questions, or feedback you have about today's episode. And we'll be back next time where we'll sit down with the art director of Pixelmatic, Wayne Wong Chung. We'll see you then.